2021. I'm Georgia Purdom here with Roger Patterson Hello. and Gabriella Haynes. And I uh, can't believe we're almost to the end of March. So yeah, yeah. It's time marches on. <laughs> uh, can't stop. There we go with the pun in there. Yeah, the it, was, day, it was so. the first, it has been the first time that I'm back. That's right. So yeah, I spoke today, it was the first time speaking after having yeah. Daniel. Gabby and had her second little yeah. boy. Mm -hmm. I got to see him in the hallway. He's absolutely adorable. So. Yeah, in between speaking and uh, answers news, the babysitter brought him so I could feed him, and she <laughs> took him, and I was just feeding him. She's multitasking much. today. <laughs> so we're yeah. glad to have Gabby back with us. Yeah, I'm so. so happy to be back here. And I would like to say hi to Lydia. I met her in the museum uh, maybe one or two weeks ago, and she's like five years old, I think, and Aww. she watches Answers News. Oh, that's great. And she looks like me. She's adorable. <laughs> You have little fans. <laughs> That's good. That's good. All right. Well, um, to get started here, we're just going to talk a little bit about um, some of our educational programs that we offer here at the Creation Museum as well as at the Ark Encounter. And Roger and I and even Gabby are involved in some of those programs as well um, with our Explore Days and Explore Junior. And so um, Explore Junior is kindergarten through fifth and Explore is sixth through twelfth. And um, these are either half-day or full-day programs that focus on different science topics. So if you go, Roger will blow something up, probably. Yes. In fact, Wednesday, we're doing a lab on combustion. Ooh. So we're going to be making little test tubes explode, and but safely. Just Safe. little props. Safe so. explosions. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love, I love doing that. I love teaching the kids, engaging with them. Matching the energy level of a room of 30 to 50 uh, upper elementary kids and into middle school is... And even into high school is very uh -huh. challenging for me at my age. But <laughs> wears me out by the end of the day, but it's great fun. Yeah, so we have them on all different topics, and we're even offering some down at the Ark now um, with our animals, with zoology as well as botany. And uh, Gabby does some on paleontology, and so um, we have a lot of different programs on that. So you can go to creationmuseum.org slash explore to find out about that. We also offer camps in the summer. So these are day camps that we offer. We have two five-day camps and two three-day camps this year, um, and they're offered in June and July. And so um, for the... It's a different topic basically every day uh, for the five-day camps. And then we have a forensic science three-day camp as well as an automation, teach me automation camp, three-day camp that we're doing this summer. So um, you can find out more about those as well. But they're, they're really, really fun. So if you have a kid that's really uh, is interested in science and wants to learn more about, again, we're teaching it from a biblical worldview, right? Starting with God's word as a foundation for understanding the science that we observe and see. And so those are great programs to check out. All right, so to get started here, um, we always have a fluff story, what we call our fluff, because, you know, the news is hard enough, so you got to have a little bit of fun. So the Cadbury Company has named a tree frog as the 2021 Cadbury Bunny. Well. So, which I think is always a little weird that you're naming another animal as a bunny. A bunny, yeah. Well, wait a minute. You've already got a bunny that lays eggs. Right. So why not have a tree frog imposing themselves as an imposter? <laughs> what am I trying to say? I can't think of the word. As a, they, are, they are posing as a right. bunny. So a tree frog posing as a bunny. And they're laying eggs too, so yeah. it's really. And frogs actually do lay eggs, so That's it's really true. not all that weird. Well, what I thought it was interesting is because uh, they're gonna receive Betty will start Betty will start in 2021 commercial and receive a 5,000 prize. 
So a tree frog gets five thousand dollars. Mean? What about <laughs> us? I'm not sure about that. But now it also said that this was the first female to ever win this prize. So it makes me wonder how they have a bunny that lays eggs that isn't a female. But yeah. well, I guess none of it really makes sense. Well, anyway. in our in our current culture, it's right. not surprising, right, no, to find yeah. that. that I mean, happen. it's almost laughable because you're like, yeah, sure, a tree frog can be a bunny. I mean, you know, whatever it wants to identify it as, it's all right. So uh, anyways, yeah, so that's what we have going on. All, all right. right, so we're getting lots of people online here, I see. So that's great. Keep Checking it coming. Checking in from Oregon and Germany and Michigan and Indiana. Yeah, I have people from New York, Texas, Michigan, Denver, and na, 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 na. yeah, it's just funny someone put here. Kevin said, frogs self-identifying as bunnies, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Canadian euthanasia bill targets disabled and mentally ill. All right, so Canadian, Canada has a, um, a law that basically allows individuals to um, be euthanized or have, you know, willing to be euthanized. And so now they're making it legal for doctors to directly kill or assist the suicide of vulnerable people who are not terminally ill. So this is, this is people that have disabilities or mental illness. They're not necessarily going to die soon. Okay? They don't have that prognosis, which is what the bill was supposed to, or what the law is supposed to be for people that are going to die soon, so they just speed it up, so to speak. No, this is just because they have this disability or this illness, then they would be allowed to, to um, go ahead with euthanasia. Yeah, yeah, so one thing that this bill is removing is the requirement that a person's natural death be reasonably foreseeable, is the way it's phrased here. So um, as I think about it, everyone's death is reasonably foreseeable. Yeah. It's, it really comes down to a question of how soon. And um, when we think about people with disabilities, it's often brought into the realm of quality of life. But if, if I think about it, I've got a bad knee. Mm -hmm. I don't like walking around too much because my knee's bad. Is that a disability that would lead me to have a low enough quality of life that I'd want to end my life? And so many people are thinking about it in this perspective. And as you look at the big picture of all of those things and bringing physicians into this, it's really an odd situation for a, a physician and one who's quoted here in this, in this article talking about how she was trained to save and preserve right. and give as hope. much quality and hope mm -hmm. in life as possible, but now she's going to be asked to help people end their lives, and that's the exact opposite of what a doctor should be doing. Right, right. Yeah, and the problem is when they, they, when they talk about disability and mental illness, it's just a definition. They can change disability for anything. They can change mental illness for anything. And when you open the door for yeah. changing the definition, you can do as Roger said, like if he's knees, if someone has a knee problem and he said like, well, this is not helping me to live, you can just go and, you know. So it's, it's just showing that life, as we say normally here, it's a culture of death. Like it really it's, it's killing in the womb, it's killing when you want to be killed now, and it's killing when you're elder, and, and that's just as disrespect life. And they wonder too, like how is this gonna affect kids and youth that um, are disabled or have mental illnesses, so now they're gonna be growing up in a culture where they're like, well, you know, if you don't wanna deal with it, you can just, you know, be killed, it's fine. Or even allowing parents to make this decision for their children. Okay, so now we have it not only legal to kill children in the womb, now it's going to be legal to kill children outside the womb, right? They'll just 
put a fancy phrase on it like euthanasia, but it's murder. Mm That's what it is. And and that's what it's going to lead to, sadly. God always has a plan for everybody. Mm -hmm. He has a plan for everybody, um, despite what you're going through. So it just just breaks my heart thinking about something like that because we're going through a time that we have... We, are, we know people that have died because of COVID and everything. And it's just how hard it has been to families, you know. And then here, it's just like, oh, yeah, you want to die? Just, just go ahead and we can yeah. kill you. Mm-hmm. Michael Barrett, who's a minister of parliament there in Canada, he says, I'd urge my colleagues on all sides of the house to reaffirm the dignity, dignity that is inherent and inalienable in all people, in every person, and to keep the preferential option for the vulnerable in mind. So what he's appealing to here is what we would see as a biblical standard. Mm -hmm. Humans only have an inherent worth if they're made in the image of God. And in Canada, they've pretty much abandoned God as far as their cultural norms go. And so here, this man is asking for the blessings, as it were, that come along from a biblical understanding of humans, but not willing to embrace the God who is the one who's actually in charge of this world, who's, who's set all of the, the standards and requirements for us to follow. And really, in an evolutionary worldview, I mean, and again, from an evolutionary worldview, to look at people that are mentally or physically disabled, um, they're just draining resources, and you don't want them to reproduce because they might produce it in their, in their offspring. So it doesn't make sense in an evolutionary worldview to keep people like this alive, right? We want the best and the fittest to survive. And so um, it's... It, if you don't start with the biblical worldview, it's really hard to justify. Um, even though this guy was trying to do that, it's really hard to justify that outside of a um, biblical worldview. And here, like, we all, have, we all have disabilities. We all have our challenges. Right. We all have, you know. For example, I was talking in my, my lecture um, a bit ago. Like, I wear glasses. I never wear them because I don't know where I put them. But I should wear them, you know. So we all we all have our problems and challenges right. and disabilities. So it's just yeah, it's just so hard to see yeah. what they're we're coming. Definitely. Yeah. All right, I can't let this comment pass. Oscar oh, no. says back to the frog and the rabbit. It went from rabbit to ribbit. Oh, that's good. I like that. That's actually a I didn't one. understand it. <laughs> All right. Washington University scientists once creationist institutions held to a higher academic standard. Okay, so you might read that and think, well, that sounds like a a good thing. I mean, why wouldn't you want colleges to be held to a higher academic standard? But what does this scientist think is the higher academic standard? So he basically says that, and I quote, credit from courses that include creation science should not be used towards science degrees, nor should they be eligible for transfer to secular institutions. So in other words, we should discriminate against Christian colleges that teach from a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. That's his higher academic standard. Yeah, so this has to do with the accreditation standards that any institution would go through to uh, receive that uh, authenticity to give a, a degree to award those degrees. So this is the Council for Higher Education Accreditation. And there's been a group of uh, Christian colleges, it's often known as the TRACS group, who has uh, done this for schools. We think of groups like uh, the Masters University or Bob Jones or others who are uh, associated with a Christian worldview education. And he's proposing that if they offer these courses that teach the science from a biblical creation-based view, a young earth view, then those should be noted and monitored 
and the uh, potentially even those who take those courses from those universities should be denied opportunities of degrees or jobs in the future. And that's a very challenging position. Now, after this was published in the Wall Street Journal, he tried to come back and say, well, no, I don't mean we should track individual students and punish them, but how are you gonna control that once right. you know that this student went to a certain school right. and those courses that. are offered, offered and they studied that field, you automatically know that student was involved yeah. in those things. And so there's no way to avoid those things and this would be kind of opening up a Pandora's box that you're not gonna be able to put right. the lid back on. Yeah, and the problem is a lot of those things has already happened. Like they have already tried to, you know, push the idea of not giving us opportunity. Um, uh, when I was in school, like I, I right. you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a creationist. You know, if, if anyone would ask me, I would say, but I was praying that nobody would do that because once that you say that, the doors close, right. totally close. You know, the doors close. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want you involved in their labs. And what they're doing here now is just making it like like a law and making right. it, you know. So it's just it's just sad to see. And I think it's sad, you know, because like. As if it's not bad enough that people outside of Christianity and seculars want to discriminate against Christians, you have professing Christians wanting to discriminate against other Christians. Like, wow, that's really bad. And the thing is, too, like, he says, well, this should just take place in science classes. But no. what's to stop it mm -mm. from just being something that's acknowledged in science classes? What happens when it goes into political and culture classes and Everything. philosophy? And yeah. And if this professor, he, Psycho he has a biblical view of sexuality, I presume, mm -hmm. and then so why would sexual ethics not be included in this type of things? Why shouldn't we go with the world's norm? He says that for science, we should go with the world's norms on those things. Why not so for sexual right. ethics? Right. Right. And he wants to draw lines mm -hmm. that can't be drawn in no. a truly, uh, in a secular nature, they're gonna conflict with those things. So we have to be very careful and think about how these things are gonna, pro are gonna progress. And so, uh, Professor Klinghoffer, another, another doctor who was responding to this, brought up some of those concerns. How are we going to deal with this when it gets into areas of sociology or sexuality or other ethical ideas? Do we just go with the world's norms? That's a very dangerous mm -hmm. way to look at things. And uh, Dr. Steve Pettit, who is the president of BJU, actually, Bob Jones University, actually responded to this um, article and said, that you know, he wants his students to be fully conversant with and able to think critically about both models. And right. I applaud that, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's not like, I mean, I attended Cedarville University, which also teaches biblical creation. And you know, we were taught both models so we could understand the evolutionary model and see the problems with it. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's what we're doing. We're, we're thinking critically because we're looking at both models. You go to a secular institution, you're not gonna hear anything mm -hmm. about the biblical creation yeah, model. I'm only going to hear things. one side. It, yeah. was, it I, was totally one-sided. I mm -hmm. didn't know. I was trained as an evolutionist, believed those things. I thought that was the right way to think about it. Yeah, so. me too. I went to Sutler University, and that's all that I learned. I, even like uh, when they were talking about creation, everything, they would mocking and making fun and all of that, you know. So they do not show the two. The two. And, and that's kind of, if they, sh if they were showing that, they would show in a very bad way too. Yes. So. Um, and creationists can be scientists. Like Wait. <laughs> 
Uh, really? No. Like you two? Uh, we yeah. both have PhDs. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Paleontology and molecular genetics. Roger is a science educator. We all have degrees in science and we do real science. Yeah. You know? So and we actually we are the one that we have the base to do good science because mm -hmm. we're we understand what truth is. In their worldview, truth doesn't even exist. So right. why they're looking for something that doesn't even exist? Um, we are the one that actually we're looking for uh, the truth because yep. we understand that yep. that's that's real. All right. So, so oh, and I know we were going to talk about this yeah. this mm -hmm. book. So this is a brand new book by Ken Ham called "Will They Stand: Parenting Kids to Face the Giants." And this is such it's a very very good read. I highly recommend it to every parent, every grandparent out there, because this is the kind of world your kids and grandkids are going into, where even Christians, right, are coming up against. Christians. Um, and so how do we stand on the truth of God's word and make sure we ourselves, but then how do we make sure that the next generation does that as well? And so Ken shares some of his own personal story in here about that and relating then to how do we do that today. So great book, Mother's Day, Father's Day, all those are coming up, right? So this is a great tool um, to be able to get for those parents and grandparents. All right, so the next one, genome reveals clues to giraffe's blatantly strange body shape. Okay, so giraffe's a bit of an evolutionary enigma, all right, because they can't really understand, like, a, a giraffe, I mean, because of its really long neck, has to have blood pressure, like, basically two and a half times that of a human being to be able to drive the blood. I mean, you talk about working against gravity, right? You've got to drive the blood all the way up to the head there. Um, and so there's a lot. And the giraffe's bones grow, like, really, really fast. And so... It's been kind of um, interesting to see evolutionists look at this because they're like, well, you know, when it got this body shape, then it must have it had to evolve these changes to be able to keep up with its body shape. And but, I'm like, and if you think about all the processes that have to happen in an organism that large, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm I'm six six, but when I bend over to tie my shoes, I usually don't lose. <laughs> gallons and gallons of blood flowing down <laughs> to my head. But when a, when a giraffe does that, bending over to get a drink, it's got to face those physiological challenges. Why doesn't its brain just explode Slow. with all mm -hmm. of that, that blood rushing down to there? So those things from an evolutionary perspective, they don't make sense. And we don't see a lot of intermediates in the fossil record. We see uh, shorter neck giraffes. So if you've been to the Ark Encounter, we have a giraffe kind represented there that would have a body structure more like a modern day okapi, much shorter. But today we have these giraffes with six or seven foot long necks. Right. How does that all happen in that evolutionary time frame? And they're looking at that split. Uh, so there's the ruminant genome project. So giraffes are ruminants like cows. They have multiple stomachs that process the food that they eat. And so they're looking at the division of those things. And they say that uh, about 11 and a half million years ago, the giraffes separated from the okapis, and you have massive differences in their chromosome number. Mm -hmm. But how does that happen in an evolutionary timescale? It just doesn't even make sense. Yet they, they believe that is the case, so they're going to look for evidence that's going to support their view. And what I think that when I see a giraffe, it's just, it's a challenge for us to see all that and to see how, I think that God does things like that just to kind of, you know, just to show how amazing he is, you and know, creative. that they're, yeah, he's creative. And then the, he designed something like that, that for us is just confusing, you right. know, how that works, but God is perfect in everything he does. And it's, it's really mm. cool. And it's just really cool that the ark now has the, 
the commercial of the ark right. has With giraffes. The giraffe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and the thing is too, like they, you just see evolutionary assumptions all throughout this article. Well, they looked at this one gene because they, it's the most divergent gene from the other ruminants. So Again, that's a total evolutionary assumption that it somehow came, it somehow caught a common ancestor with all these other ruminants. That's why they're saying it's the most divergent. But in reality, again, that's just an evolutionary assumption. Or, well, the reason the chromosome number is different because of all these fission and fusion events that occur. But those are deadly most of the time, um, and they don't occur easily uh, in, in any organism. So how could that happen? You know, and, and so it's very, it's a, again, an evolutionary mystery, so to speak. But one of the things they did, which I thought was really cool, was they used a gene editing technique called CRISPR, which you may have heard about before. They actually took this gene that they think um, might be responsible for the long neck, and they put it into mice. And I was like, man, I was really hoping for long-necked mice. I thought that no, would be really cool. No, no, no. But they didn't. Okay, so obviously, but like most things, there's more than one gene involved in a particular structure that an organism has. But they did notice some differences in the mouse in its bone growth and its bones being stronger. Um, and so obviously a giraffe needs that as well. And, and so it's, it's cool because they're actually learning more about this particular gene. And we have genes that are similar So because we come from the same designer. So how, how does that work in us and what is that responsible for? And so it's, it's very, very helpful in that sense. Yeah, someone put here, explaining the giraffe really stretches the truth of evolution. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, and they talk about unique evolutionary adaptations, you know, that yep. the giraffe had. And I'm like, no, they're great designs Design by features. God to allow the giraffe to be the way yeah. that it is. So, yeah. Always, always, you have to look for those assumptions in there and what are they really thinking about. All right, this next one. So our paleontologist is going to have fun with this one. Frozen in time, scientists find rare fossil of dinosaurs sitting on eggs with embryos inside. All right, first question. Is it a dinosaur sitting on those eggs? No. Gabby. No. <laughs> no. No. Uh, I just think it is very interesting when they put all of those... Oh, yeah, it's just showing there. It shows like a little bit like a dinosaurs and a bird all together. What they want to do is just relate both and putting them together as they are the same thing. Mm -hmm. And even like in the way that they define now birds and dinosaurs, they're in the same group. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like that before. So what did they have done as everything else they, they in this culture that we're living, they're changing the definition of what a dinosaur is, what a bird is, so everything can be together here. Yeah, what? they referred to this as a non-avian dinosaur. So right. that <laughs> an avian dinosaur would be a bird, bird. and a non-avian dinosaur would be a But this a isn't dinosaur. even a non-avian dinosaur yeah. because it actually is a bird. It's probably yeah. like a flightless bird, oh, yes. like an ostrich yeah. or something And there are some like scientists that, that they agree that it's a, it was a flightless uh, bird. And this paper and also the original paper, what they published it, um, talk so much about birds, like ostrich, and all of that, that you, you're just like, wait, they're talking about a dinosaur, they're talking about a bird, everything else is about a bird. Even like when you go to check, because they did a, some experiment with um, oxygen isotope, and to check the temperature of the incubation of the eggs, mm -hmm. and it, the result goes towards birds, and not dinosaurs, and not birds, not reptiles. So, because in the reptiles, it's between 26 to 32, the temperature. 
And with birds, it's around 30 to 38. And the result, it was around 32 now that's degrees, that's degrees Celsius. Oh yeah, not, sorry, yeah, not sorry. Fahrenheit uh, for you American yeah, listeners, yeah, viewers. Um, that that's Celsius, yeah, that's right. But it's interesting. The paper it's in Celsius, and well, scientific, science, is science yeah, always use Celsius. Yeah, I, I knew uh, what you meant. <laughs> yeah. So um, even when they go and check all the information, they check even the anatomy, which I thought it was interesting because in the paper that I was first published, these um, species, these genus of raptor. Um, it doesn't look like that. It's not like that. The one that was actually published in 1924, um, it does not look like that. So um, the anatomy is very different from the other raptor. So I don't know what's going on there. Um, but it does have legitimate feathers. So like yeah. we can see that in the fossil record. So mm -hmm. that's why we're saying again, and everything else about this, this organism points to a bird, yes. right? not we, a dinosaur. When we find a fossil like this, and it's associated with other things, we have to ask the question, was it in this position because they got tumbled together in a mudslide, or was it actually what appears to be in this case is a brooding bird sitting on top right. of a clutch of eggs? And so we have to make some uh, determinations, some interpretations about the position of those things uh, just because we find a leg bone inside of the mouth of another <laughs> creature doesn't mean it was actively eating it. It could have happened as the things were being moved around in a mudslide or something. So examining these things and understanding how the fossils uh, should be interpreted is important. So this is a pretty reasonable, I think, interpretation. Right. They've been able to actually look inside of the eggs using various uh, techniques, and they can see that the embryos inside of them are at various stages of development. Mm -hmm. So we can, we can recognize all of those things happening. And it looks like this was a clutch of eggs that was being brooded by this bird. And it's, it's not uncommon, like ostriches and things like that have what they call communal nests. Mm -hmm. So that, there's 24 eggs here, so no bird's probably gonna lay 24 eggs. But they all were, were basically laying eggs and then they might would probably take turns sitting on the eggs um, in that communal nest. But the thing at the end that I loved about this article, Here's what it said. Because finding it like fossilized like this, sitting on a nest, it said, I sometimes wonder if something like a flash flood potentially killed them. Wait, wait a minute. A, a flood? <laughs> a flood? Yeah. A flood. Hmm. Yeah. And in this case, the animal hung around on top of its nest trying to protect its eggs. Yeah. That's a really reasonable explanation, like as in Noah's flood. <laughs> That's what happened probably to this because mm -hmm. of where it's buried and everything. Yeah. And, and in a lot of papers in paleontology, um, you see the word flood. They believe that some of those animals, right. they were um, killed on a flood. Um, not a global flood in the biblical mm -hmm. perspective, but like on the flood. Why? Because the sedimentation, the way that the fossil was, that all points to a flood. But they're still trying, denying, you mm -hmm. know, and trying to say that that... The, the global flood doesn't happen when you see fossil everywhere in the globe. Right, so, right. yeah. Okay, so a dinosaur that isn't a dinosaur is a bird found sitting on its nest. Not really that unusual. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely what we would expect to find. All right, the evil within us, evangelicals and mass murder in Atlanta. So this is an article um, related to the mass murder that occurred down in Atlanta where eight um, women were killed. 
and um, by an individual, a young man that was, he was just 21 years old. And so he was actually a member of a church um, there in Georgia. And so what this author, who is very much against Christians, okay, so you have to understand the context of this article, he basically is going to say, well, this is the church's fault. This is Christianity's fault. Um, and that is why this young man, because of what he's been taught, committed this murder. And the whole article, I mean, it's worth it to read, but it's, it's full of so many straw men and um, just generalizations about Christians that aren't true, right? Yeah. He's going to say a bunch of things that aren't true and then say, see, this is why they, he did what he did. And it's like, but Christians don't even believe that. The mm-hmm. Bible doesn't teach that. But that's always I mean, like that. They're going to always go to, to catch what is the extreme, the worst, to try right. to apply to everybody what's a logical fallacy when you do that. It's something mm-hmm. that sounds right, it sounds logic, but it's not. And um, that happened once with my professor in college because he was mad that I, he, he found out that I was a creationist and then he was just get, get, getting all the worst of Christian and putting me mm-hmm. in that. And I was like, I'm not mix. this person. So. Now, we have to acknowledge as Christians that there are, uh, certain things that have happened in the past uh, that may have uh, kind of fostered a negative culture around sexuality and things. And we, we can understand those things and we grow and we learn from those things in our culture. But here the author says uh, as a way to kind of disparage this church and this young man to those who are reading his article, he says that this church opposes sex outside of marriage. And my reaction is, so the church believes the Bible. The church lives by what the Bible says and it expects the people in its church to abide by those things. Now this, this young man was a member of this congregation and he had been baptized and he had uh, problems with pornography. So he was letting those lustful desires rule his life. He wasn't mastering sin, but he was being mastered by those sins. And it led him to an action that no Christian that I'm aware of, and many have come out and spoken against this, including the church that he attended, no Christian would condone violence against somebody because they were presenting uh, temptation to you. That's not the way we resolve those things. And throughout this article, like, like Dr. Purdom said, it's just straw man after straw man and extreme after extreme. But he says that we should, that Christians see sin as something that's always coming from outside them to tempt us. And yes, we acknowledge that sin comes from temptations that are outside of us, but it's when we let our own sinful lust. desires right. yes. lust after those things, whatever it is, that's when sin takes us and we head down that path of destruction. But we can read passages like right. Romans 8 that talk about how we've been freed from that. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We've been freed from the slavery to sin. So this young man had failed to either recognize or implement some of those things in his life. And we don't need to see that as a a repudiation of all Christians, but we might want to take a close examination of ourselves and see if there are some of these things that we need to be aware of in our own lives, in our own congregations, our own church communities. I mean, you know, he, I I think this young man knew he, I mean, he obviously knew he had a problem with this, but he tried to fix it in a way that isn't biblical, you Mm -hmm. know, right? And so um, through sort of behavior modification or, or, you know, trying to do away with these things rather than the saving grace of Jesus, right? That's what he really needed to have freedom from this. And, um, but yeah, all throughout this article, um, he just, he tries to, 
he even talks about um, evil and sin and all of that, but he, he kind of says, he says, human evil is not a problem to be solved, it's a mystery. And I'm like, no, it's not a mystery, right? We know when we start with God's word that, yeah, because Adam sinned, we all sin, we all have that sin nature, and we can have freedom. Um, we can, we can, you know, he, he says, well, you know, we're always gonna battle our baser instincts. Well, yeah, we all have a sin nature, and we do have to battle that to some degree, but also we can have freedom from sin in Jesus Christ, right? And we're not just left hopeless, um, we are hopeful. You know, in the Bible, Paul said, such were some of you. I believe that was in Corinthians. Um, such were six, some yeah. of you. You know, we don't have to continue to live in that. We can have freedom in Jesus Christ. So, yeah, just a sad kind of look on that particular. It really lets you issue. see how yes. someone who has a very toxic view of Christianity mm -hmm. thinks. So yeah. a helpful read to help you yeah. uh, look yeah. at that view. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we are out of time for today. So we will see you back on Wednesday. Bye. God bless.